you know, that zero to one feeling where something didn't exist and then because of you, it existed. I mean, it's, it's really hard to replicate that feeling. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the final episode of What Led You Here and What is the most appropriate way to wrap up the series in a conversation with the incoming CEO of Zero and my successor, Sakinda Singh Cassidy. I know Zero partners, customers, and all our Zero people around the world are super interested in what led you to Zero, Sakinda, as well as your priorities and aspirations for the company we all care so much about. There are many aspects of your journey that led you to Zero, which I look forward to exploring with you. Experiences in the early and growth phase at Google, leading Google's operations across Asia-Pacific and Latin America, investment banking with Merrill Lynch, leading as president of StubHub when the pandemic hit and effectively shut down the company's operations, and your role as a founder of three companies, Yodley, Jungly, and Joyous. Through it all, you've emerged as a strong advocate for women in business, for equality, and respect for human diversity, broadly defined. Sakinda, welcome to What Led You Here, and of course, welcome to Zero. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. It's been uh, obviously an exciting and fast few months since the announcement of your appointment. So let's start with the obvious question. What did lead you to Zero? Well, as you well know, as the outgoing CEO, Zero is a pretty special company. And when we talk about special, I think all of us in our careers are, you know, are looking for special when it comes to our next moments. Of course, we want career progression, but we also want to go to a place where we find the work meaningful and where we can both learn and have impact. And in my own, you know, CEO search, zero mounted all those things. So let's just take those piece by piece. Professionally, uh, when I think about the platform that zero represents, it's a global small business platform that really empowers small businesses, right? To take their finances into their own hands and grow their companies. And that's a pretty massive opportunity. You know yourself that we're pretty early in the adoption of cloud by small businesses. So it's a space that's global, massive TAM, and massive, I would say, business opportunity, still early in its evolution. So that was sort of professionally kind of what was at hand with the Zero Opportunity. Personally, Zero has a pretty special culture. It's a culture, I think, that speaks maybe a lot to my own values, a culture of inclusion, a culture of authenticity, a culture of care for people and how people can do their best work. And certainly in my own interview process, I found that to be true with the board, with you, with everyone I met. And so it also felt like a place where maybe I could be my authentic self and do some of my best work. Yet to be seen, but that's the hope with the tribe where I feel like I could belong as well. Now, you know, if you come to sort of like the opportunity at hand, you know, the intersection of both that massive TAM plus kind of a place where I, as a leader and as a human, want to kind of show up every day and be able to be at my best. I think it's that combination that led me to zero. There's also another dimension to this, which you articulate really nicely, which is the alignment of your journey with the purpose of zero, which is to help people in small business. And that means a lot in the context of your family. So would you like to touch on that? Sure, sure. Well, you know the story, but for those who don't, both my parents were doctors who were doctors in Africa together and ran a medical practice. And then when I was very young, when I was two, they immigrated to Canada and actually effectively started all over their medical practice pretty late in life. But my dad in particular, while well, they were both doctors, my dad loved being a small business owner. And he was one of those small business owners who didn't believe in using an accountant. 
So probably when I was maybe seven or eight years old, I mean, I can remember it. He would sit all three of his daughters and his wife around the dining room table every year around March 1st, and he would bring out all his physical checkbooks and have us enter into a book, his entries in a ledger, and then add up with the calculator, the total, so he could figure out how much tax he owed. And we were always scrambling, literally, like to be the family (laughs) who was buying their taxes and getting them in the mailbox at like midnight, I think on April 15th, which is the tax deadline in Canada. And so I grew up learning how to do my dad's taxes. That was my view of small business. And it's how I learned entrepreneurship. It's how I learned, as I said, business. It's how I learned accounting. So it does feel pretty special to me. You know, it feels in some ways like it came full circle without really meaning to. (laughs) But I identify strongly personally with the mission. And I also, you know, in in that context, you also have quite an affinity with people who are founders and operating their own businesses. And in fact, uh, have been a founder yourself on a number of occasions. Mm -hmm. Many of our customers and partners are founders of their businesses as well. When you reflect on the journey of a founder, what, what would you... What would you like to share with those who are building their own businesses? Well, first of all, a lot of appreciation. It's hard, hard work being a founder because as many of you know, you wake up every day sweating the small stuff, sweating the big stuff, and you sort of never really rest easy because all the opportunity and problems are in your own hand. (laughs) All the mistakes are of your own making. All the glory to be had sort of depends on whether or not you can grind through these difficult moments that often, quite frankly, surround things like capital and understanding your cash flows and just do you have enough money to achieve your you know long-term ambitions, but more importantly, just to survive over the short term. So first of all, just a tremendous amount of appreciation because I've been lucky enough to found three companies and they've had very different outcomes. Yodely, you know, made it all the way. And in fact, is one of Zero's partners, ironically. Joyous, my second company, you know, I spent six years building it and we sold it for a very small amount. It was very early for its time. And the board list just ticks along, you know, as a small mission-driven startup. Every year, literally, we work on growing our revenues and staying profitable and being as capital efficient as we possibly can. So I just have a lot of appreciation because it takes so much grit over a very long period. Yeah, I think it's fair to say, and and I'm interested if if you agree, that the journey when it is successful of taking an idea and turning it into a business that helps customers, makes a difference, is about as good as it gets uh, in the business world, isn't it? Yeah. In some ways, it's even it's even better than as good as it gets because, you know, that zero to one feeling where something didn't exist and then because of you, it existed. I mean, it's it's really hard to replicate that feeling, right? The trying and failing, but they're just manifesting something. You'll appreciate this. You know, many people sort of are obsessed with the idea of like making their kids, you know, computer scientists and programmers and what have you. And, you know, I have three kids and I don't know if they'll ever be programmers. Just to be clear, none of them are headed in that direction. But from a really young age, the thing I wanted to teach my kids was that like makership and entrepreneurship can kind of come in any format. So when my daughter was young, we got on Blurb and we put all of her photos together in all her art and her diagrams together in a hardcover book. And then I made her sell it back to our family, mostly to just know what it felt like to create something that didn't exist before, you know, and she had a cupcake business. And, you know, my son has lots of ideas for businesses. My 13-year-old, never one that he sticks with long enough, but he's pitched me everything from like NFTs to gaming ideas. Mostly I just want my kids to experience that zero to one feeling where something didn't exist before. And then you manifested it. And that doesn't require programming. It just requires you to sort of try, right? 
and look back, you know, a day, a week, a month from now and be like, oh, I actually created that thing. It's a pretty special feeling. And on the other end of the spectrum, uh, you also have worked for some of the biggest technology companies uh, on the planet in their journeys actually to scale and uh, interested in thoughts that uh, might be relevant to our audience or even in the context of Zero CEO, what are uh, the key takeaways from that experience? In some ways, I feel like my career has been a bit of a pendulum where I've swung both ways. There's something very different you learn about global companies, right, at times when they're scaling. In my case, it, I was at Amazon, Google, most notably when they were scaling, and I guess StubHub when it was trying to find its next gear of growth. The first thing you come to appreciate is why companies are big. I know it sounds really silly, but, you know, when companies get big, it's because they found product market fit. Like, And so the importance of just, and they keep refining it. So I think the one thing that I've learned from larger companies is, you know, A, you know, getting a product market fit unleashes a flywheel that you can't imagine. And just doing one thing well can lead to an incredibly big business. So often people think like, hey, to build a big business, you have to do dozens of things well. That's simply not true. You and I both know that. Google today is a trillion dollar plus company still off search. Yes, it has other businesses that become big, but the reality is its flagship product is amazing. You know, Amazon, yes, has built, you know, dozens of different businesses, but it's flagship product, shipping things to people fast called Amazon Prime. <laughs> that thing is an engine, LinkedIn, you know, a place for your professional identity. And so I think the other thing I've learned is number one, you know, doing one thing really well can go a long way. Number two, it takes years and that work is never done. And so I think, you know, and then the third thing I learned is, of course, in and around that, how you start to prioritize and allocate your bets, big and small. Right. How do you make sure the core gets enough continued attention because it is your flywheel? And then how do you start to allocate, you know, small growing bets over different time frames around it? So I guess that's what I've learned at big companies. It's a pretty different journey, but in many ways, it starts with the same thing, which is find product market fit. And once you have it, keep it, <laughs> which is hard work. Keeping product market fit is hard work too. Yeah. I think there's also the, the message in what you're saying around focus. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the challenges, I think, for any growing business, particularly the founder-led phase where, you know, the next shiny object can uh, end up being your unmaking, but it can also end up being pretty amazing. So it's really that ability to choose the right time and place to diversify or pursue new things when you're building something that uh, still requires a lot, of, uh, a lot of effort. Yeah, I think you're hitting on one other thing that I've often talked about. If I have when I think back to my time at Google, one of the things I have the most admiration for was Eric Schmidt, who was our CEO at the time, trying to figure out how to reconcile all of Google's bets and allow Larry and Sergey, who are the founders and very involved in the business, to still like drive creativity, but also drive focus. And so we came up with this thing that I think has largely become regarded outside of Google as well, called 702010, where he simply first tried to organize all the company's engineering bets because everywhere they were happening, like, you know, if an engineer wanted to work something, they could just go work on something. And he was like, well, what's an organizing principle for it? So we can at least measure where our engineers are spending their time around roughly where maybe we think they should be spending their time. And so he said, hey, how do we measure what people are doing and then bucket in into the core, the adjacents, you know, businesses adjacent to the core business, like maybe maps or local in the case of Google search, or even video was, you know, adjacent to Google search. It was a different type of search. And then like moonshots, you know, these like small emerging bets that may or may not work out in any reasonable time frame, but are experimentations that you want to do. Android would have been a moonshot at that point. 
And so he forced the company to measure it. And then he roughly reallocated and just tried to make sure that Google stayed in that allocation. But it allowed both to flourish, right? New ideas could still flourish, but they needed a container. Adjacent areas got their due because they really were going to be Google's expansion of its search business. And then the core got 70%. And as I said, that core has led to, you know, a trillion dollar business. (laughs) So I have a lot of admiration for that. And in many ways, I guess in my head, I always kind of hold that 70-20-10 in lesser or greater proportions. But this idea that we must measure and put things in their proper buckets. And then within their buckets, things can flourish. But it's really hard to be unfocused across and not know why things are going in certain buckets. It's one of those areas of uh, most challenge, this whole notion of how you organize and how you focus. I think the other area that we touch on in this podcast is facing into fear, uncertainty, and doubt, particularly when you're building a business. And also risk-taking, which is all related to that. And you're an author of a book around this domain called Choose Possibility. So I'm interested in your, your, your thoughts for our audience around you know, risk-taking and also facing into the uncertainty and, and fear sometimes that uh, you confront. You're hitting a topic I think that's near and dear to my heart because you're right. I wrote a book on it during my time off after StubHub. But the reason it's near and dear to my heart is because I believe we all go through life, myself included, with two conflicting fears, you know, r- r- largely called fear of missing out, this idea that something amazing like that zero to one opportunity could be around the corner or the opportunity to do something great, right? And then the other fear that haunts us is our fear of failure. And so quite simply, I feel like we act when our FOMO, our fear of missing out is greater than our failure. And we fail to act when our fear of failure is greater than our fear of missing out. It's a very simple equation, right? I think for most people, maybe they think that, hey, the way to get into action is to just keep ramping your FOMO, just keep ramping your fear of missing out, right? What that kind of idea fails to deal with is what you point out. Fear of failure and uncertainty is a massively paralyzing thing. So you could have a lot of fear of missing out, but still, if your fear of failure is bigger, it doesn't matter if you just deal with one side of the equation, but not the other, you won't act. So I often think that the way to get into action is by dealing with that harder side. Do you know what I mean? Which is the fear of failure. And maybe one of the analogies I really like the most is one that Jeff Bezos used in his original shareholder letter about how Amazon is able to take risks. He, and this was early on, not now, but not, not now when it's like a massive company, but even when it was younger. He basically said, most things in life are two-way doors. You can go through, make a decision, go through. If it doesn't work out, you can come back. <laughs> He's like, the reason we at Amazon are able to take risk is because most people think things are one-way doors and they're two-way doors. Go through, like pre-mortem what happens if you fail. And if you can come back, Or if there are a bunch of other options available, if you make a choice that fails, you know, reduce your fear of failing because you need to realize that most of the things you think about doing or acting on are two-way doors. They're not one-way doors. There's no like irretraceable way back. So I guess I'm a big fan of facing your fears, but more likely bucketing them appropriately. Is this a small fear, big fear? Is it warranted or not? Which really depends on, is it a two-way door or one-way door? You speak up in a meeting, somebody doesn't like what you say. Is that really a one-way door to like you being fired? Unlikely, (laughs) you know, you know, there's a way back from that, right? There's a way to listen to the feedback and adjust the way you say something. There's the chance for, you know, really changing the conversation by opening your mouth, you know, and that is so much bigger than the risk that you're going to get fired. But I think it takes us understanding that most of our choices are two-way doors in order to overcome our fear of failure and get into acting. Good stuff. Talking uh, maybe a little bit more broadly about leadership, 
you know, what are your observations in the journey that you've been on about the style of leadership, maybe people that you admire and why that's the case? The people I admire are very different from me in their leadership style. So let me start by saying that. And then maybe I'll talk about what's been impactful on my own journey and how the two relate. Like, how is it possible for me to admire people with a very different leadership style than I do? It probably speaks to sort of diversity. And I'll come to that. First of all, I think the leaders I admire, I'd start with my dad. You know, I can think about almost every boss I've ever had where I thrived. And what I admired about them was their ability to let me run, to sort of, in some ways, make people feel present and heard, to create an environment, right, where I found it easy to do my best work. And that was probably by their nature. Like, as I said, I feel like I encountered areas where, you know, I I just met leaders who were fairly understated, quite frankly, and they're people who would probably not call me understated. That's why I said, very different. But what I admired most about them was their ability to make others feel heard, uh, listened to, and able to, you know, I would just say able to be themselves and do their best work, right? So that's that's what I've admired in, in leaders who are at the top of my list, starting with my dad. I think like for my own leadership journey, maybe the only thing I share in common, <laughs> I hope, or I aspire to is being authentic myself, right? So if I was granted the ability to be authentic from the leaders I was with, I think one of the things I carry maybe in my own leadership style most is I want to show up authentically and imperfectly. Because even though I don't have many of the traits I admire in those leaders, I know that if I show up authentically and imperfectly, maybe it lets the leaders, you know, who are on a journey with me do their best work and feel like they too, right, can thrive. The other thing I think that I kind of feel in my own leadership style is something I work towards and I learned, again, from the leaders I worked with is, I try and mostly presume positive intent and give people, you know, I'd say a lot of room. So I'm probably a leader who errs on the side of like, hey, you know, let's see what you can do, you know, and then maybe at two or three months in, figure out where they need help. And I think for some people that's discombobulating because I think they expect somebody to come in and tell them what to do. And maybe I'm far more likely to be like, hey, tell me what you want to do. I'm going to watch how you operate and figure out how maybe I can maybe be more insightful to you or where you need more from me. So I don't know. Those are two things. I mean, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of things I do imperfectly. I in no way espouse that I have all the traits of the people I admire. But I think I've taken, you know, from what I've seen others do. And the things that are important to me are authenticity in my own leadership style. Because I hope it gives other people license to be authentic and take risk and realize it's not always going to work out. And then B, like I said, I sort of presume you're capable. So if you're expecting me to manage you, quite frankly, I'd like to create a framework where you manage me. And then two or three months in, we can figure out like what's the ideal way for us to go forward together once I've seen what you can do and how you want to work. A couple of things about you that that I think do stand out. I think listening and the importance of listening, but also you're comfortable in your own skin. And, and I always find that um, on the journey of leadership, a lot of it is about learning who you are and becoming comfortable in your own skin because that makes it easier to bring out the best in others because it isn't about you. It's about enabling others. So I can see plenty of that in the way you're going about things. Well, thank you for that. That's very kind of you to say. I think you hit on one other maybe leadership facet that we both uh, feel strongly about, I know you do too, because we have been working together for the last few months, is I think we both believe that self-awareness counts for a lot, right? Like expecting perfection from others in yourself, like that's a failed journey. Like, wow, leadership's already hard enough. If that's the standard you set for yourself and others, it's a really, it's an impossible one. 
But I think setting the expectation of self-awareness, what are your superpowers? What are your areas for development, right? And being comfortable with both those things. Uh, you're right. I look for that in other leaders and I admire it when I see it. I'm like self-awareness counts for a lot. Let's talk about the board list. And that's uh, another enterprise that you've inspired. And uh, I think it really is something uh, really worth touching on in the context of how do we uh, continue to do what we all know is important, which is to include more and more people in uh, the most important uh, journey of life, which is really the opportunity to grow in their work and uh, advance their careers. The board list is a, for those who don't know it, it's a talent marketplace, a place where diverse leaders who are seeking opportunities to serve as board members can be discovered, i.e. they can put their name in and ask for others to endorse them. It's a place where people can be recommended for board opportunity. And it's a place where people can be found. And to some degree, you're like, well, that seems pretty narrow. (laughs) But I do believe that if you want to create more diverse leadership, you don't just start by sort of grooming a next generation of women or diverse leaders to be like today's entry level grads. You start at the top. Like there are many, many qualified leaders who should be in our boardrooms today and helping govern companies, but they simply don't have access. It's not a level playing field. It's a playing field of leadership that itself, you know, has been subject to unconscious bias and homogeneous networks for many years. So I started the board list, gosh, I guess in 2015, seven years ago, because it really felt like in tech, women, uh, which was a very narrow start, but women were really not being, you know, given equal access to opportunities and leadership. And so it started as a crowdsource list of women leaders who were recommended for boards and then could be found by simply going to the board list website. And it's grown since then to be a platform where diverse leaders of all kinds can be recommended and discovered for board opportunity. Just changing direction again, if there was one piece of advice you would give to a uh, would-be entrepreneur who's looking to take that next step, what would it be? It would be start today. Don't wait for a grand vision plan (laughs) and plan. Don't wait for capital. You know, what's the minimum, minimum, minimum viable incarnation of your idea? So, you know, we just talked about a little bit when I created the board list, I had no money. I literally reached out to 30, you know, leaders in Silicon Valley and said, would you send me names of women you think are great on an Excel spreadsheet? And we posted it to a website. That was the beginning of the board list, right? If I had waited for capital or waited for a business plan, like nothing would have happened. So just like, what's the most smallest kind of inkling or kind of, you know, sense of a product you could put out in the world just to get some feedback. And it's remarkably simple if you think about it that way. And then you're on your journey. Like you just, you just started, you didn't even know it, but you did. Awesome. So look, just to cover off a few quick things in the time we have left. So we'll do this as a bit of a lightning round. A book recommendation. I'll give you two. My old favorite, Good to Great. If you've never read it, it's just a great one by Jim Collins, a management classic, and a newer version by McKinsey called Strategy Beyond the Hockey Stick. It's how companies can sort of learn to outperform when they're, let's say, midway through their journeys. An important quality you find essential in people you hire. Uh, you hit one of them, self-awareness. That's, uh, yeah, that's, and if I could give you a second one, it's probably grit. Where uh, in your life do you find joy? Uh, My kids, you know, just like my kids, my kids, my kids, and some sillier ones, but equally true. Tennis these days, that's my COVID hobby. Uh, Wake surfing with my family, that's another fun hobby. And then a totally indulgent one, which I never apologize for, shopping. Like 
I love discovery. <laughs> it's so much fun. Maybe the last one, which is a pretty big one, which uh, says, what do you want to be known for? Hmm. What do I want to be known for? Uh, I would just say maybe having impact and impact broadly defined. You know, maybe that's being an accelerant for people's careers that I got a chance to work with who are in any way, I'm sure, you know, way talented. But if I could be an accelerant, an accelerant to an idea, impact. Yeah, I hope there's something maybe that accelerated because I was uh, able to contribute my efforts. Sakinda, thanks so much for your insights. A very fitting way to conclude this series of conversations on leadership and those critical moments in the leadership journey. Before we wrap up, I want to just take a moment to thank every guest who gave us their time and shared their experiences to the great benefit of our entire audience. It's been an honor to host you all and offer my sincere thanks for all I learned through these conversations. And with that, I'll draw our discussion to a close. In fact, the What Led You Here series. It has been an absolute pleasure to have hosted this Zero podcast and spoken to so many inspiring, gutsy founders, CEOs, and entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening. And Sakinda, thank you again. And good luck with taking Zero to the next stage of global growth. Thanks, Steve.